Hi, everybody, and thank you for joining us for another Compliant with Alliant podcast, bringing you insights into employee benefits compliance. I'm your host, Christine Blanco, the Director of Employee Benefits Compliance here at Alliant Employee Benefits. And with me today, per usual, is Diana Craig. Hi, guys. Also an attorney in our compliance department. And today, we are going to talk about, we're going to have an affordability development discussion. Um, And what do I mean by affordability? So we're going to talk about affordability in the context of the pay or play mandate and how it might be impacting your ACA reporting as well as the potential for penalties under pay or play. So a quick review before we jump into the specific developments. Under the pay or play mandate, those of you with over 50 or more full-time equivalent employees are required to offer coverage to your full-time employees and their dependents or potentially pay a penalty. And there's a couple ways you can get penalties. I'm not going to focus on the Part A big penalty because that's an entirely different discussion. We're going to focus today on what we call the Part B penalty, um, which could come as a result of your plan being considered not affordable. And so unaffordability under pay or play is defined as or as where an employee is asked to pay more than 9.5% of their modified adjusted gross household income for your lowest cost minimum value plan at the employee only tier of coverage. And that's a mouthful. So, you know, to round that up, your lowest you know value plan, the employee only rate cannot exceed 9.5% of that employee's household income. And that rate is adjusted, and Diane's going to tell us a little bit about that in a minute here and some developments. But it's important, too, to understand that the definition of household income is modified adjusted gross income. So it involves not only the employee's income, but you know um, also potentially the spouse's income and potentially some dependent implications. And so we don't have visibility um, as employers, complete visibility into modified adjusted gross income. So we may not necessarily know um, what is affordable and what isn't. So let's talk a little bit about that 9.5% of the employee's household income. Dana, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, yes, Chris, because I really am excited to share some news. She's always excited to share the news. Okay. And so. we've debated whether this is actually exciting for, on the, for the record. <laughs> this is very, very exciting to me. Just yesterday, the IRS released Revenue Procedure 2018-34, and that is basically telling us For plan years beginning in 2019, the unaffordability percentage is indexed up to 9.86. And some of what I think is so fascinating about this is sort of, you know, every year we're waiting for what is the new unaffordability percentage. And, you know, it's been been really something of a roller coaster ride. Pay or play was supposed to be effective all the way back in 2014, and that's where our 9.5% came from. It was delayed to 2015, indexed up to 9.56, and then we saw it climb, 9.66, 6.9, then back to 9.56, and then now for 2019, the unaffordability percentage is 9.86. It is, and just to thumbnail sketch that, essentially what that means is as that percentage increases and is indexed, you can charge your employees a little bit more and still be considered affordable. So as it as it ekes up a little bit, you can, you know, raise that, you know, it impacts your employer contribution if 
you're really, you know, concerned about having what we call an affordable plan or being able to report, quote, an affordable plan. Um, yeah, and Chris, do you want to talk about, do you want me to yeah. go into the safe harbors and then you can talk about how we code and report on those or how do we want, what order of operations That's a very good use? question. So let, let's talk real quickly about reporting and why this matters, okay. right? And so then we'll talk a little bit more about the mechanics. So whether your plan's affordable. And so, you know, remember on your ACA reporting, on the 1095, where you're talking about your uh, your offer of coverage to your full-time employees, there are three lines that are very important, line 14, line 15, and line 16. 14 reports the type of coverage you've offered, minimum value to spouses and dependents. You know, usually it's a 1E offer if you have an offer of coverage. And then line 15 is your premium. And then line 16 is what we call here, your get-out-of-jail-free you know, codes, you know, any sort of Safe Harbor code, any um, if they are in a waiting period or a limited, any kind of limited non-assessment period is what we call it. So in a measurement period. So say you didn't offer coverage, um, you code, you know, the reason why. But where you do offer coverage, and if you have designed your employer contribution to be affordable under one of what we call the affordability safe harbors, because remember. We don't have total visibility into whether the plan is affordable because of the definition. So the IRS has given up, given us what we call these safe harbors. And if we use them, our plan can be deemed affordable. And on reporting for line 16, there are very specific codes, three of them that correspond to three safe harbors that would be included if your premium meets those requirements. And so we've seen... We've recently seen some 226J, which are the penalty assessment letters under payer play for the subpart B penalties, and usually where line 16 was left blank, which was okay back in 2015. Diana, jump in. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think when we look at coding, um, you know, we were all very, very myopically focused on coding when we first started doing reporting, and, and but we've learned some important things over the years. So first and foremost, um, if you have a declination, very often, right. line 16 is left blank mm -hmm. unless you can enter one of those affordability safe right. harbor codes, That's and right. then that can really save your bacon is what we're seeing. Exactly. I mean, we always said there's no, unfortunately, there's no code for a waiver of coverage, an offer and a waiver. And so really, to Diana's point, you know, you, you populate line 16 where you use uh, an affordability safe harbor. So it's really important to understand, especially now that assessment letters are coming out, whether your premium falls into one of those affordability safe harbors. So why don't you tell us a little bit about mechanically what those are? Okay, so um, a, a safe harbor is important for an employer. It doesn't disqualify an employee from getting subsidized exchange covered, but it um, it clears you of any penalty risk for that employee. Yeah, and let's before you go on, let's let's note you don't have to use an affordability safe harbor, and we're going to talk about a more pragmatic versus prescriptive approach to affordability in a little bit. Absolutely, but you don't have to. Okay. Yeah, so completely optional for employers. But what you're buying when you use these safe harbors is even if an employee goes to an exchange gets a subsidy, you will not have a Part B penalty if you are in that safe harbor. And out of the gate, I just wanted to say, um, when you use a safe harbor, you can't just sort of pick and choose which employees get what. It has to be for a reasonable category of employees uh, and applied on a uniform and consistent basis for employees in that category. So we don't have a ton of guidance um, around mechanically what that means, but what I think we can say is, you know, you can base it on nature of compensation, hourly or salary, um, ge geographic location, just sort of those bona fide employment categories that we, uh, we always are sort of talking about here and there with respect to benefits. Um, and I'm just going to dive right in. I think we want to start 
with the W-2 safe harbor. And so just when we talk about that, what you are saying is that employees will not be asked to contribute more than uh, 9.5%, but again, for 2019, we're indexed up to 9.86, of their W-2 box one wages. The thing that we want to know, uh, note here is that this is a retrospective determination. So if you issue a W-2 uh, for somebody in, in um, early 2018, that's what controls for 2017. So the W-2 you issue in early 2019 controls for 2018 and so on, you know, so you guys get it. So you don't always know um, at the end of the calendar year whether or not you're going to have hit that mark. Right. It's one of those things where, you know, it sounds a little bit counterintuitive, right? Like, how am I going to know at the end of the year? But but there are practical ways to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think you can really structure your plan so um, the employee's contribution isn't going to exceed that index percentage uh, sort of based on what you're saying in terms of salary minus those pre-tax um, deductions that are it's ultimately going to be what's in dot box one. And that's something we all grumbled a little bit about when these affordability safe harbors came out. We went box one wages, that that considers all of their pre-tax salary reduction elections. Mm-hmm. And yeah, those are the nuances. And, and, and certainly what's important to note, and I, you know, I don't want to interrupt here, but, you know, the use of the safe harbor really is particular to what kind of employees you're talking about here. Like a W-2 safe harbor is you know good for a certain facet of employees, but maybe not others. And, you know, you can walk through that, right? Yeah, I mean, and I might let you talk about rate of pay safe harbor, mm-hmm. and then I'll pick it up again, because that way you're going to be listening to me for literally an hour on safe harbors. But just, you know, lastly on uh, W-2 safe harbor, I think it can be preferable to some of the other safe harbors. It's certainly going to be um, less expensive for an employer than the federal poverty level safe harbor. Uh, so, Chris, you want to hit sure. briefly rate of pay? Yeah, let's like I'll run through them quickly. And, and but I want to go back to something you were talking about before, which is the reasonable category of employees. So, what we're seeing come through on these letter two two six Js, and you'll you know if the the penalty assessments include a list of employees who got a premium tax credit, and you know where and it shows you how you coded them on their ten ninety five, and it gives you the opportunity to recode them. And so we've had some clients kind of taking a look and saying, oh, well, you know, our, our premium was this. It's a, you know, it's W-2 safe harbor technically for this group of employees, but maybe not for this group. And you really can't use that, that, that affordability safe harbor unless that's a, an entire reasonable category. So unless, let's say it worked for your people who lived in Texas, but it didn't work for your people who lived in California. Okay, you can use it then for your people in Texas because that's a reasonable category. But if, it, if you don't have a reasonable category distinction, you can't then go ahead and use that. And I think that's important because we're kind of parsing through that as we see these letter 226Js come in with Part B penalties. But moving back to the affordability safe harbors, under the rate of pay safe harbor, it, you know, it makes fairly intuitive sense. You set your contribution based on the employee's rate of pay, whatever that may be, on an hourly basis, multiplied by 130 hours a month because that's the number of hours you use to determine full time. And those hours are capped regardless of how many hours are actually worked. So um, you know that's employer-friendly in that regard. And for 2018, it cannot exceed, obviously, you know, 9.5% of the employee rate. That goes up in 2019. Um, it gets a little bit, um, it can get a little bit complicated where you have employees who have fluctuating rate of pay. So if it's reduced during the year, the rate of pay is applied separately to each calendar month. And you, your contribution can be treated as affordable if it is based on the lowest rate of pay for the calendar month multiplied by 130. So you got to be careful about using this where you have employees with fluctuating, significantly fluctuating schedules. And notably for non-hourly employees, 
you use the employee's monthly salary as of the first day of the month, but if it goes down, you can't use that rate of pay safe harbor for that month. So you may want to look at a different affordability safe harbor, but where you have some static employees, you have people who are working, whatever they're working, their rate of pay is going to stay the same. Um, throughout the year, it's a fairly safe safe harbor. And then real quickly, I don't know, do you want to jump in on federal poverty level or want me to oh, keep going? yeah, no, let me take over federal poverty okay. level. Because this is, again, something that is indexed and that I am passionate she's about. She's very excited about the indexing. I told her it's really not that exciting, but she's arguing with me. It is super, <laughs> super exciting. Okay, so I think um, federal poverty level safe harbor is the easiest safe harbor to apply. It mm-hmm. is also the one that generally costs yeah. employers the most. That's so, a good point. We yeah. didn't talk about that. That's a good point. Yeah, when, when you're applying this safe harbor it's safe it's easy but it's a little bit expensive so you're basically saying um, employee contributions are going to be based on a hundred percent of the single federal poverty level in effect six months prior to the start of the plan year so the thing that i think is interesting about uh, federal poverty level indexing is yeah they get released each year usually january february sometimes march as applicable for the year they're released in. Mm-hmm. So you're not, um, you're always sort of trailing on this one. Right. You can't obviously set your contribution plan, you know, prior to open enrollment on, you know, what you don't know that affordability or that safe harbor to be. Yeah. I mean, and just for, for example, so if we had a 2019 plan year, we're going to be looking at um, the employee can't be asked to pay more than 9.86% of the 2018 federal poverty level, which was $12,140. Yeah. That's right. So, and again, the federal poverty levels go up. So as we do this math and we take the, you know, the index percentage and apply it to the index federal poverty level, we get this sort of um, cost per month that we watch very, very closely. Mm-hmm. And to stick with my 2019 example, applying the federal poverty level safe harbor, 9.86%. Of our 2018, 100% of the federal poverty level, it's going to be $99.75 mm-hmm. per month. So that is a, a really easy number um, that that we can use and sort of stick to. It's, it's easy because the employer, again, you're looking to the FPL generally that was in place prior to the start of your plan year. So you, you have some um, runway to plan to. And these are pretty easy numbers. They're fixed numbers. They are. And, you know, I'll tell you, I one of the... Um, groups with whom we work who was dealing with some Part B penalties and you look at their I was just looking at their employee contributions and I see that their contribution on a facet of their employee population was around $70 so I know automatically because of these numbers I know automatically that qualifies on the under the federal poverty level safe harbor so it's a really good um, bar by which you can measure sort of you know above or below so any kind of a $95, ish dollar amount, you know, if you're below that, you're going to be affordable across the board and potentially leaving money on the table. But we know a number of groups that, for all kinds of reasons, um, set their employer contribution in a way that they can they can use the federal poverty level safe harbor. That's unrelated to affordability, whether it's culture or whatever the case may be. Um, so those are the three the three safe harbors. You'll want to make sure, like I think it's really important to know, to know whether you use one. I talk a lot to uh, groups who they, they don't know. Um, they know their employer contribution, but they don't know whether it fits into one of the federal poverty or whether one of the affordability safe harbors. So if you walk away with nothing else from this podcast, um, take a look at your employer contribution and know whether you can use an affordability safe harbor. And then 
moving, you know, moving away from those safe harbors and into a more sort of pragmatic discussion of affordability, what we're looking at here is just a percentage of modified adjusted gross income. So we can back our way in to that number in other ways if you don't want to be set with an affordability safe harbor. And there's some other factors to talk about in terms of Remember, you only get penalties on people who are subsidy eligible, and that's a swath of people between 100% of the federal poverty level with a modified adjusted gross income of 100% of the federal poverty level up to 400%, right? So if you're if you are a group of architects, let's say, who make all make well into the six figures, it is highly unlikely that any of your employees are subsidy eligible. So none of this really matters, right? So, but, but most employers aren't there. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, and I wanted to talk about something that we talked about actually a very long time mm-hmm. ago, back when the ACA was enacted. Um, and it was... Oh, Medicaid expansion. Yeah, Medicaid yeah. expansion. So, you know, we talk about you are potentially eligible for subsidies in an exchange if you earn between 100% of the federal poverty level and up to 400% of the federal poverty level. Um, But in states that elected to expand Medicaid eligibility to all adults with incomes up to 138% of the federal poverty level, when somebody comes in at, let's say, 135% federal poverty level, uh, they walk into an exchange, you know, pretending that these are real buildings where you walk in and buy stuff, but (laughs) you go in and you apply for this coverage, you don't get routed to an exchange subsidy you get diverted into Medicaid. That's right. And you do not pay a penalty, under the ACA Mm -hmm. at least, and for now, for employees who enroll in Medicaid. So when we do our unaffordability math in expansion states, instead of using, you know, 100% of the federal poverty level as a firm statutory safe harbor, we have kind of a wink-wink unofficial safe harbor at 138% um, of the federal poverty level. And that can be, you know, is, you know, let you add another, you know, 35 or 40 bucks. $36 a month for 2018. In particular, I did my math. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. The lawyers are doing math. I was told there'd be no math. Um, But yeah, so you have a, you have a lot more per month you can charge and be relatively part B risk free. However, you cannot include, there's no get out of jail free code on line 16. You, there's no affordability safe harbor code you can use, so you'll include your premium and that'll be it. So, But it is an unofficial. Yes, but definitely harbor. don't try to pencil in, Diana said I could use a, a wink-wink unaffordability <laughs> right. safe harbor, because it, it doesn't exist, but you are, you're pretty Part B risk-free. Chris, you yeah. want to take my other holistic one of, of minimum, minimum wage? wage? Sure. Um, and we don't want to bore them for too much longer. We could talk about this all day. Um, I but, really, really could. <laughs> essentially... And, and again, I think this is a good, a, you know, a good reminder when, when the ACA was first coming, you know, first enacted and we were really looking at this and trying to be pragmatic about it. You know, if you look across your employee population and you know you have a bunch of low wage earners who are going to be, you know, Medicaid eligible, that can factor into your decision making process. And that includes, too, do you have a, do you have a, a, a large swath of minimum wage um, earners? And so when you're looking at um, what the minimum wage is, right, and you're looking at full-time definition at 130 hours, that tells you something about where your risk starts, right? So what you're looking at is you can estimate that most ACA full-time employees must be earning at least $1,170 a month because you're doing, you know, minimum wage of $9 an hour times 130, and that's at least 14 
$1,040 per year, and then you could set your rate of pay or you could set your employer contribution based on those assumptions and make it affordable based on those numbers, which gets you a little bit more of a cost share than the federal poverty level safe harbor. So you're saving a little money there. And, it, and again, it's an, it's an official way to ensure affordability on your plan. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're looking at here is if we just kind of ballpark 100% of the federal poverty level being, you know, $12,000, and we're teeing off our 9.5% of that, as is index, mm-hmm. we're now comparing that to $14,000. Um, you know, you have to look at your state-specific minimum wage, and, you know, some of those are actually pretty high in they certain are. states and cities. That's right. So when you're using the federal um, minimum wage requirements, really there's largely going to be no full-time employees in your in your employee population that are making under that the 14 that for whom you have exposure under pay or play so these are some of those sort of pragmatic approaches and why i think it's really important and 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 can save you money depending on your employee population in a way that's you know fairly low risk right um do we have anything else we want i think we hit it all on, on anything else? Yeah, no, I think it's just really important to constantly revisit your existing cost-sharing strategy and just know and understand sort of the an- annual incomes of your lower wage earners because that's where where most of your risk lies. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Be mindful about how you set your employer contribution and also able to specifically answer the question of whether you use an affordability safe harbor so that you can tell your vendors or you can plug that into your own reporting system to reduce any potential exposure where you have individuals who are going to be subsidy eligible to avoid then later having to uh, recode those. If you have a 226J letter with a Part B penalty and you know, there's no, no, you didn't put anything in line 16, take a look at your contribution. Can you, can you go in and recode that with a safe harbor code? And, and if you go into, you know, open enrollment, knowing the answers to these questions, you'll be really ahead of the game as it relates to affordability. So I think that wraps it up for us. That's it. And just, you know, one final note, 9.86. 9.86. That's our new unaffordability uh, percentage. Very exciting. Super exciting. <laughs> okay, so that wraps up this episode of Compliant with Alliant podcast, offering you a more approachable view of employee benefits compliance. So for more information, you can visit us online at alliantbenefits.com. Thanks for listening.